KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, Flashpoint fam, it's me, your host, Cherry Gregg. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for all of your support during 2020. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for all of you guys who left reviews. I want to express my gratitude and wish you the best Hanukkah, Christmas, and Kwanzaa. See you on the other side. It's officially 2021. Happy New Year. So we're taking a look at the lessons learned in 2020. Allyship, right? These broad coalitions that have come together for particular issues and seen success. And a peek at what's ahead when it comes to the pandemic and politics. The vaccine is 95% effective. That is as hopeful as we're going to get. Plus a deep dive into the issue of race. People are going to be looking for accountability. Can you deliver on those promises? And I think that some heads will roll because some people are going to get called out for not delivering predictions for the new year. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. To kick off 2021, we are taking the entire half hour to reflect on the past year, lessons learned, and the obstacles we overcame in 2020. We'll also look forward to what's ahead. To put some perspective on this pandemic, politics, and race, and how it's all tied together, we have Molly Harrard. She is director of the Division of COVID-19 Containment for the City of Philadelphia's Department of Public Health. We also have David Dix, a political strategist and commentator who is CEO of Illuminous Strategies. And finally, we have Stacey Hawkins, a professor at Rutgers Law School who is an expert on diversity and the law. Welcome, everybody, to Flashpoint. Good to be here. So a lot happened in 2020. Molly, I want to start with you. Philadelphia was hit hard by COVID-19 and worked to contain the virus. In fact, your department didn't even exist when 2020 started. Give us a picture of where we were in March, April, when this all began versus where we are now. Right. So in March and April, everything sort of stopped in the rest of the health department and everyone kind of was pulled into the response of COVID containment and everyone was working around the clock and helping out wherever they could so that we could try to stay on top of things and keep the case counts as low as possible. But as we started getting into May and June, it became very apparent that this was going to need to be a long-term strategy and the rest of the great work that the health department does needed to resume. Uh, And so that was when we created a new division for COVID containment. And in my division, we are over testing expansion, contact tracing and case investigation, as well as providing isolation and quarantine supports for people in Philadelphia. And you know, we did not exist as a division, and now we have about 240 employees to this effort. And that doesn't even include the vaccination effort, which is also, you know, the latest development in this. So March, April, it was a really scary time. And I think we all remember the fear that we felt when things started to 
get locked down and all of our lives were turned completely upside down. Uh, and, you know, as we've moved forward, we've had times that it started to feel a little bit more normal or like this was the new normal. Um, and then, you know, it, it started to feel scary again. I think that right now we're looking at cases are rising. We've just had a bump from the Thanksgiving holidays. We have more holidays on the horizon. And even though we have a vaccine, people are still getting together and this virus doesn't seem to be slowing down very much. Yeah, and I gotta talk about the containment effort because um, businesses hard hit in an effort to contain this virus and to stop the, the spread and the deaths and all of that. Talk about that strategy and, and how it's impacted people in the decision-making process that goes into this because so many people are resistant because they're losing money. This is the worst pandemic that we've had in more than 100 years. In 2018, heart disease killed more than 3,400 Philadelphians. And we could be approaching that number when we hit the one-year mark here. And so when we've talked about closing businesses, you know, I'm no expert on economics, but the damage wrought by the pandemic to people's livelihoods is probably just as bad as what we're seeing on the health side. And so we don't take restrictions lightly. We meet every single day. We are constantly evaluating where are we seeing spread? Where can we help slow spread, but still also keep things as open as possible? And it's definitely a balancing act and we are trying to be very responsive and we don't take this lightly. We need people to be safe and we also need people to get food on the table. So it's constantly evaluating everything at once. And so now we have vaccines. We have two options now. You know, we already have seen our healthcare workers. Now we see people who are in, you know, nursing homes and senior facilities and congregate care about to get their vaccine. But then we also hear that there's a variant of the virus. I Never mean, a dull moment. So, <laughs> so does this, this vaccine, does it even give us rest? You know, as we work to not just contain the virus we've already been fighting, but then the idea that another one could be coming. I mean, we're still learning a lot about this new variant. The information that I have so far is that the vaccine will still help manage this variant. So, you know, until we hear more and learn more, I don't think that there's any reason to be concerned about the vaccine being our lifeline in this, but it just highlights that people need to continue social distancing and masking and being very aware that this disease isn't going anywhere just yet. We need to keep our vigilance. David, I want to bring you into the conversation. There's a pre-COVID life. We, we just talked about COVID-19, which has been the center of our culture, of our health, of politics yes. <laughs> for the for the past 10 months or so. Gotta bring you in because there's a pre-COVID version of politics and then there's a post-COVID version. Can you put this year in perspective? Because I think a lot of people forgot we started out with impeachment proceedings in 2020. We started off with impeachment proceedings uh, of, of President Trump, but we also started off with nine candidates running for president uh, that quickly dwindled down. So I think you're right to kind of look at the demarcation as pre and post COVID. And, you know, I really look at this year in politics as being being influenced heavily by two, the, the, the martyrs of two uh, pandemics. One was the one that we knew less, less about, 
uh, in the form of COVID-19. And the other was the, the pandemic of race that this country has been dealing with for more than 400 years. Both of those pandemics converge on the political cycle this year. And particularly in the primary, it was difficult for the, the government infrastructure to just, how do we run elections? in the era of COVID. So if you remember when our primary was moved to June here in Pennsylvania, you know, most people voted by mail. Nobody went to vote in person. And it was weeks before we were able to certify the primary election. Now, counties got together and got their, got their voting mechanisms in order for the general election, but we still saw a lot of ambiguity about the system and whether or not it's going to be able to stand up during this pandemic with all of the provisions and procedures that are saying on how we should conduct ourselves. So exactly, you were right to say, you know, this is pre and post COVID as we look at this political landscape and a lot of different industries within politics, particularly the administration of elections had to really get their, their act together in a way that they never had to before. And people use the pandemic and what Molly was talking about and they weaponized it politically. Could you talk about the impact of the pandemic on this political cycle. Absolutely. You only have to look at the presidential race to see two different approaches in terms of how they approached the pandemic, right? You had President Trump in the form of, you know, his campaign style was a large scale, high volume, condensed, oftentimes outdoors, campaign rally events where he was able to, in an unfettered way, get out his message. But now President-elect Biden had a much more cautious approach where, you know, he was often being ridiculed. If you remember the first debate for some of the COVID measures that he was taking, he was doing a lot of his events from his home in Wilmington. Uh, and then towards the fall, he started having much smaller scale events, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 people that were super separate. And it was it was harder at the time to really see, is this going to be able to turn around into votes? Is this going to be able to, you know, to, to energize folks? And then later, you know, right, right before the election, he started having these kind of drive-in style rallies where people were in their cars and being entertained by John Legend or Lady Gaga. I think that was a good pivot. Um, but at the same time, you had the president continuing, even after contracting COVID, continuing to kind of bring folks together in a large scale, high volume way. He also kind of, he also uh, advanced the narrative that there was something fundamentally flawed about the election process. And I think in retrospect, that's something that did not serve uh, the president well, President Trump well. Had he kind of had a plan for, uh, for his constituency and his supporters to vote by mail, vote safely by mail, had he had a plan uh, to encourage folks to, to adhere to the COVID protocols, I think it, must, it may have been a much tighter race. Uh, but the, the, the two indicators of him both kept catching and contracting COVID after kind of flagrantly uh, disregarding some of the, the procedures and the time that he had to sit down for two weeks because he couldn't campaign really took a lot of the wind and momentum out of his campaign sales. And, you know, and the, and the fact that he was doubling on that by telling folks, you know, be critical about the process, I think ultimately hurt him. If he looks back on this this year, I think President Trump would have wanted to take a couple different tacks for his own political benefit. That's real. That's because, I mean, now his legacy is being impacted. But I got to talk about the historical nature of this election as well. History being made because we have one of the oldest presidents ever. And then we also have the first woman, first black person, first person of, of mixed race to ever be vice president. That's huge. And, and, and then on top of it, you couldn't really even celebrate it the way that 
America normally celebrates this type of thing. Well, like we remember celebrating when President Obama was elected in 2008. I think the thing that kind of pull out of this, particularly for Philadelphians and Pennsylvanians, is that Black women in Pennsylvania and across the country really drove that narrative. President-elect Biden was considering a lot of different candidates, Amy Klobuchar being one for vice president, and it was Black women in an organized way said, look, no, <laughs> you're not going, there is no other option, right? And then if you look at his shortlist, it was folks like Representative Val Demings, Keisha Lance Bottoms from Atlanta, and ultimately now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And that sign, that signal that Vice President, um, that President-elect Biden gave to America and saying that we're going to move the needle, we're going to move ourselves boldly forward into history, really did resonate. And when you look at the, the role that Black women played, not only in getting Joe Biden through the primary election, but in November 3rd, just a couple of months ago, getting him elected president, I think it was a good example of you know, how political leverage can both be extended and reciprocated. And I look forward to that kind of reciprocation continuing as Joe Biden takes office as president. Yeah, and we'll talk about projections for 2020 in just a couple minutes. Got to bring in Stacey here. You know, you're an expert in diversity and the law. This was a big year for race. Um, you know, Dave kind of like gave a, a little bit of a sprinkling of that, but lots happened right from the beginning of the year. Absolutely. Talking about COVID, it, it became very clear that COVID highlighted the longstanding racial disparities and inequalities that we have dealt with in this country. This is not new, but COVID certainly highlighted that we are continuing to experience widespread racial inequality that are, you know, again, highlighted by these racial disparities um, from COVID-19 deaths as well as, you know, uh, cases. Um, and so that was the first thing. COVID highlighted the persistence of racial inequality and racial injustice in this country. And then, of course, we continue the long string of police shootings, um, most notably, obviously, George Floyd, who really galvanized not just the country, but the world. I saw a graphic um, that displayed all of the protests that happened over the summer in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And this particular graphic identified 4,444 that touched every single continent on the globe, except for Antarctica. Every single, all of the 50 states of the United States. I mean, it was really just just a moment of reckoning, not just nationally, but globally. We saw posters in the UK that said, you know, the United Kingdom is not immune. You know, we know the transatlantic slave trade was not just, right, on the United States. It was all of North America and it was Europe. And so, you know, these are persistent problems. And quite frankly, anti-Black racism has something has been something that we have actually traded in around the world. This is, this is not really even just a problem with, you know, countries that were a part of the slave trade. Uh, you know, there's just a long history of anti-Blackness that we see manifesting itself, for instance, in China, where, you know, Africans and even African-American expats were being expelled from China during the COVID crisis because of this anti-Black racism. And so we have really seen in very stark relief how all of the inequalities that have just persisted, uh, as, you know, David said, you know, for over 400 years have just come into sharp relief for us. Gotta also mention, because we had Breonna Taylor, Daniel Prude, we had the dueling Coopers in, in Central Park. I mean, there was so much. And then, Stacey, the knee-jerk reaction to all this beyond the protests was that companies, everybody wanted to take part. We heard statements of Black Lives Matter. Is this a movement or a moment? What have you seen, you know, over the past six, seven months that you think 
help define this moment? I don't want to speak on behalf of every company because I know that there are a wide range of responses. Um, you know, almost every, you know, organization, not just companies, but every organization had some sort of response to this moment. And they ranged quite, you know, uh, widely. I've been working with a lot of companies in the last, you know, several months. My phone, my email has been, you know, just, you know, nonstop with solicitations about doing work around diversity and inclusion, especially diversity training. And so I can tell you from, you know, personal experience working with um, uh, clients, there are lots of people who really are trying to leverage this moment to get it right. Um, there are other people who are trying to leverage this moment, right, to just make sure that they jump on the current bandwagon and that they promote, right, whatever the, you know, taglines are, whatever the rhetoric is that seems to be the right rhetoric for the moment. But I do think that there are companies um, and leaders in those companies who are sincerely in this moment trying to get it right. And we got to talk about the Black vote because David kind of brought that up. Is this part of the political pressure that can be used, not just uh, you know, within politics, with policy, but also within organizations. Because you see even nonprofits having a ripple effect. You see communities having a ripple effect, corporate having a ripple effect. How do you kind of take this time? Because it seems like that's what people are doing. They're using it to push the, push the needle forward in a very, hopefully, uh, a way that will not revert back to the way things were 10 months ago. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think we're really learning about this moment is the power of the minority coalition, right? The, the minority coalition that, you know, really put, uh, you know, President-elect uh, Joe Biden and, and Pre Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris into the White House, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, minority coalition that was really behind the Black Lives Matter movement. We did not just see Black people out in the streets, right? We saw all kinds of people coming together, but particularly people of color who say this might be about Black people in this moment, but all of us, right, experience this inequality, particularly people of color. Again, you know, the kind of further away you are from the, the, the white normative standard, the more likely you are to experience discrimination in this country, right? And so, you know, all kinds of people of color understand that, you know, equality is something that we have to advocate for on behalf of all of us, right? Because if uh, 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 one of us is uh, not free, none of us is free, right? And so we understand that. And I think that the demographics are really starting to play very heavily in our favor, right? There's a lot of power, right, in these minority coalitions. You know, none of them individually exercises an outsized amount of power, but collectively, absolutely. And, you know, again, younger generations are much more in tune with these issues. And so they are demanding to see these kinds of changes, right? They're coming together and saying, I might be Asian American, but I understand, you know, inequality and discrimination. And so we see Asian Americans stepping up, right, in the Harvard uh, uh, litigation that is trying to eliminate affirmative action in higher education that largely benefits, you know, Black and Hispanic students. But they do understand that diversity is about equality for everyone. And there are Asian Americans that benefit from that. And so they are standing together in coalition with each other. And I think that that's really one of the most powerful things that we're learning, that it's not really just about any one minority group trying to press their individual issues. It's about minority coalitions and how powerful, right, that can be when exercised together. I do think that is a thing that has marked 2020, this whole, the allyship that has taken place. And it's not just Black people fighting for this. You see Black, white, women, men, gay, straight, all of this, all these coalitions coming together to push the needle forward. So I got to bring you all back in here together to talk about 2021. We're looking ahead to 2021. People are hoping that 21 will bring us out of this mess. <laughs> Molly, I mean, you know, we have this vaccine. People have said that things are going to start opening up in the new year. Could that, is that really something that can happen given the surge that is expected? 
And, and what do we have to look forward to? Things are going to start reopening. <laughs> you know, the vaccine is 95% effective. That is as hopeful as we're going to get with this whole pandemic. And you know, we are looking to deploy it and get businesses reopened, get kids back in school. And I think 2021 looks pretty bright compared to what we just all survived together. And as the city works to kind of like, because hesitancy on this vaccine was a big deal. And, mm-hmm. and do you think that will shift as more and more people get access to the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I think that we definitely want to encourage people to keep an open mind and get the vaccine if they're eligible for it. And I think that as people see more and more people get it and want to return to a life that looked a lot more (laughs) social than this one, I think people will come around. They'll get that. And you'll see, you're going to see once people get that, uh, that vaccine, they're going to be going on vacation (laughs) mask free. And so David, what is on the plate of our new president and vice president? Because the countdown is on for their inauguration. You use the key word, I think that's going to go into 2021 is that allyship, right? These broad coalitions that have come together for particular issues and seen success with that uh, in the form of electing uh, Biden and, and Harris. But a lot's going to depend on what happens in Georgia with the Senate race. If, uh, if President Biden comes in as inauguration with a majority uh, Democratic Senate, it's a lot more leverage. It's a lot different, a lot different path to getting the things you want done than it is under its current status. Uh, I'm curious, obviously, as we all are, to see what happens in Georgia. I think it's going to be an indicator of where politics in this country is going. Uh, if you are able, in, in this case, to have two Democrats elected in a state. Uh, like Georgia, that's it's, it's now purple, right? So a lot's going to be predicated on that. Uh, and I think that, you know, moving forward, we talked about this reciprocity. And as, as President Biden, you know, takes the helm of office, he's going to have to continually remind himself and remember who got him there and continue as president to continue to deliver for the constituencies that were key to his election victory. Quickly, what Trump's legacy look like? Well, I, I think he's going to try, try as hard as he can not to be indicted and not to go to jail. So that's going to be a big part of it. Uh, we'll see a, a bunch of pardons come in uh, before he leaves office for his friends and family. I'm sure of that. But I think ultimately, if I could put a point in it, Trump has a very strong politically, political legacy. He got more votes than anybody in American history absent Joe Biden. And even in Pennsylvania, he did remarkably well getting more 500,000 more votes than he did four years ago. So I can see a President Trump really being a foil to all things not Trump. That's going to be the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, he's going to be a, a vocal part of the political dialogue moving forward, for sure. Lots to look forward to in 2021. And so, Stacey, we've seen a lot of people of color rising to the top recently. Uh, we have one of the highest ranking ranking Black women in, uh, in news now, Rashida Jones, head of MSNBC. We see, I mean, we have a Black woman in the in the VP seat. We see a lot of other people getting promoted. Is this sexy? Will this make change for 2021? I think, again, it remains to be seen. And I think that there are definitely going to be trends in both directions. So I think what I would say about 2021, it's, it's going to be the year of accountability. So 2020 was the year of promises and platitudes and rhetoric. And just like we're seeing lots of the people who put Biden in office saying, now's the time to see if he delivers, to hold him accountable, to hold his feet to the fire. I think we're going to see the same thing in the kind of corporate and institutional context. All of these 
leaders who put out these statements, all of these leaders who elevated people into positions of power, people are going to be looking for accountability. Can you deliver on those promises? And I think that some heads will roll because some people are going to get called out for not delivering, but other people will make good on those promises. And it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. The year of accountability. And as we wrap up, I want to give each of you just give 30 seconds on what you think the, the biggest lesson of 2020 has been. Molly, what do you think the big lesson has been? I mean, we have just learned how to be adaptive and resourceful and really just respond to what's in front of us, which at times feels massive, but we're, we're almost there. <laughs> Almost there. David, what's the big lesson in politics 2020? For me, it was about leaving alone the immediate for what's important. I think what this process did was slow us all down, make us kind of root in our homes and really focus on what's important in our lives. You're making sure your friends and family are okay. And as I look look, look back on the 10 months of perpetual Zoom calls and staying in the house, you know, I really can take, take hold of the value of, of, of being back connected with what's important. And I think in politics, similarly, you know, we were able to be in our homes and be really intense observers of the political process in a way that we didn't have the time or capacity to do in the past. And I think even in that case, we saw, yeah, there's some things that are, are more important than rhetoric by being engaged the way we were. People. Wonderful. We're a little down to what's important. Last word, Stacy. Lesson of 2020. Perhaps I'm biased because I'm a diversity and race law scholar, but um, Du Bois said that the problem of the 20th century is a problem of the color line. It looks like the problem of the 21st century is still the problem of the color line. Lots of people talked about being post-racial in, you know, after the election of Obama. If we've learned anything, and I think increasingly it is broad swaths of the American public who understand that we are so far from post-racial. There is still deep and entrenched racial inequality and racial injustice that we have to grapple with. And I think, I hope that we're going to start to confront that now that we acknowledge the problem in 2021. Thank you so much to Molly Harrard, to David Dix, and to Stacey Hawkins for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Happy 2021, everybody. Happy New Year. That's it for Flashpoint. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from British musician James Deacon. What you see depends not only on what you look at, but also on where you look from. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, Happy New Year. And thanks for listening. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, 
Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show.